Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them, please, to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. I want to begin this morning with a question. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Now, we all know that Christians have the Spirit in them. We possess Him or have been anointed by Him or are indwelled by Him. This is what the Bible teaches. But is that all that there is to it? Is it like a, a light switch where it's either on or off? Or is it like a jar that can be full or almost empty or half full or half empty? What does it mean to be filled? Well, certainly the Scriptures speak of being filled with the Spirit, and it speaks of it differently than being indwelled with the Spirit. When people are filled, usually it means they've been prepared or uh, set apart or made ready for a task at hand. We see in Scripture that some people walk nearer to God and some not as closely but still with Him. Some are mature, others are immature and growing. All of this is the work of the Spirit in the believer's life. And so it's not really like a jar or a switch. It is like a relationship that can grow or be grieved. It's like a relationship that can be advanced or can be hampered. In fact, it's not unlike many of the relationships that you now have. They can be helped or hindered in many ways. And you know what it means to be close to someone or to only be acquainted or to be far off and distant from them. Well, it is the same between the Christian and the Holy Spirit. Now, we all know Him. In order to be a Christian at all, you must have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You must know who He is. But some may walk closely with Him or more quickly along the path He leads them on. And they make great effort to keep in step with the Spirit. And those who keep in step with the Spirit will become more like Him. In fact, in Galatians, we're commanded to keep in step with the Spirit. By the very nature of it being a command, it means there is something to be done or it could not be done. It's possible to walk less in step with the Spirit or more. And so, my goal this morning, the singular goal of this message, is to show us just how dependent upon the Holy Spirit we are in order to walk in step with Him. We are totally and utterly dependent on the work of the Spirit of God. And we're going to start in Galatians 5, 13-26, and then move on to a number of other passages. But the goal this morning is that you will see how impossible it is for you to live the Christian life on only your own effort. And we're going to do that by pointing to the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Galatians 5, 13 through 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there, are, there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Lord, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that you would prove that this morning amongst your people and show us, Lord, your word at work to prune and sanctify your people, to uh, convict and cut off, to defend and build up, to provide safety, Lord. I pray that your word would do the work that you have promised it would do, that it would not fall to the ground void without accomplishing what you have set out to accomplish. And Lord, I pray for all of us in this room that we would see, Lord, myself included, that we would see our utter and complete dependence on you for everything that we would do in the Christian life. Every fruit of the Spirit, we, we cannot bear it on our own. There is nothing in us that would grow such fruit, but only by your Spirit. Lord, help us to believe that apart from you, we can do nothing. It's not a little something. Apart from you, we can do nothing. With man, it is impossible. And so it's to you, Lord, we turn. It's to you we look for help, for strength, for everything that is necessary to live in this life and to walk as a Christian. I pray that you would help me to preach and help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Who was the most spirit-filled person who has ever lived? You know, some might say it was Moses. Some might say maybe David, man after God's own heart. Maybe Paul the Apostle, or Daniel, or Job, or Noah. Well, certainly these were godly men. Certainly these were men who strive to walk in step with the Spirit. But of all of the men who have ever lived, who was the nearest? Who was the most Spirit-empowered man in the Bible? Well, I think the answer is obvious. It is the man, Jesus Christ. He is the perfect example of the Spirit-filled man. He is the perfect example of what it means to walk and to keep in step with the Spirit. And I want you to see Him that way this morning. And not only to see Him that way, but my hope is that this, the, the knee-jerk, dismissive reaction that, that so often says, I know I'm supposed to imitate Christ, but I mean, He is God. How can you expect me to be like that? And it kind of excuses Christ as our example. My hope this morning is that that would be put away 
done away with, and you would see the example that Christ not only sets, but expects you to follow. Now, the life of Christ, it, it amazes us, and it should. He is divine. He is God incarnate in the flesh. And kind of as a, as a disclaimer to this, we have to defend that. Jesus is God. And almost every cult that rises up in opposition to the Lord Jesus, almost always, if, the place, if they're going to put their attacks somewhere, it's against His deity. Always. The, the, the Mormons do it. The Jehovah's Witnesses do it. The Muslims do it. Every other religion attacks the deity of Christ. And, and, and so it needs to be upheld. It needs to be recognized and remembered and defended by the church in every generation. Jesus is God. But, after literally thousands of years of defending and affirming His divinity, the humanity of our Lord risks being lost on us. Now, not that we wouldn't affirm it. Of course, everyone in here believes that Jesus is truly God and truly man. We would all confess that. But what does it mean? Specifically, what does it mean when we say that Jesus is truly man? Well, in one sense, it means that He was just like us. And just like us, He relied entirely on the power of the Spirit of God. What I mean is this, and I'll probably repeat this a hundred times this morning. Everything that our Lord did, He did as a man filled with the Spirit of God. And so to walk in step with the Spirit is to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And this is not something set aside for, uh, for super-Christians who really want to follow Him as if there were two classes of Christians, right? Those who are saved and kind of apathetic uh, versus those who seem to actually want to be more like Christ and live a life pleasing to Him and actually enjoy following Him. There are not two classes of Christians. Those who really want to follow Jesus and those who are kind of ho-hum about it. 1 John 2.5 By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever claims to abide in Him must walk as Jesus walked. You can say that another way. How can you know if someone who claims to be a Christian really is one? By this we know who are in Him. How do you know if someone who claims to be a Christian really is one? You know because they walk like Jesus walked. And this, this does not mean they look just like Him. It does mean they are on the same path that Jesus took. You know, one of the questions that uh, students and young adults get asked all the time, uh, and if you're, if you're in this room and you're, you know, you're maybe 16, anywhere between 16 to 22, 24 even, one of the questions you get all the time is, what are you going to do? Right? Time of decision is near. Your, your life is before you and you're at a fork in the road. Various paths going every direction. And what they mean by that question really is, what career will you take? A career path. It has a start. It, it has a, a goal at the end. And it has a way to get there. Trade school leads to becoming an apprentice. Leads to... Uh, being a journeyman and then a master. Medical school leads to residency, leads to licensing, leads to practice or speciality. An entrepreneur may start with a lemonade stand, become a manager, and eventually an owner. 
Every path has a goal in mind, and every step along the way leads to that goal. But everyone is not only on a career path, they're on a spiritual path as well. And some, their path is aimless. They really don't know where that path will lead. And some are following after idols. And yet others are simply living for themselves. And if you ask them the goal of their life, the goal would be whatever I want in this moment. They cannot think past their present pleasures. That's what defines them, body and soul. But it's not like that for the Christian. The Christian makes it the aim of his or her life to walk the path that Jesus walked and to walk the path in the way that he did and to find Christ at the end all the while becoming more like him being transformed into the image of God in Christ this is God's will for your life 1 Thessalonians 4.3 for this is the will of God your sanctification or Romans 8.29 you have been predestined to be conformed in the image of his son God saved you to make you more like Jesus Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The more you behold Jesus Christ, the more you become like Him. You become what you look at, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, and it's the Spirit of God who works it out. The Spirit of God is at work in you to transform you by degrees into the image of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means the Spirit's at work to make you look like Jesus, to love like He loved, to forgive like He forgave, to have joy, uh, peace, and patience like He had, to work kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness into your life and to create self-control. Not only that, but to cut off sin and change you so that in a year from now, maybe a month from now, those who know you will look at you and say, you are not like you were this time last year, this time in 2021. Today, you are more like Jesus Christ than you were then. They'll see more of Him in you. That is what the Spirit is working to do, to make us walk like Jesus walked. And I know... I know that when Christians hear this, especially those with a high view of Christ, a, 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 a right view of sin, a, a proper view of holiness, they start to get nervous. You expect me to look like Jesus? And it's so easy for Christians to relegate everything Jesus did to his deity. Everything he accomplished, all of it. And, and, I'm, and I'm not talking primarily about miracles but about who he was, how he showed the love that he showed, how he, how he taught the wisdom that he had, his joy, his peace, his forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You think only Jesus could do that. No, Stephen did it in Acts chapter 7. The same thing. Why? Because the same spirit was at work in him. You think of Jesus' restraint and his steadfastness in suffering. If you were to ask, how did Jesus do all of that? Well, the answer is, well, He is God. And this is absolutely true. He is God. But He is also truly man. And in the pages of Scripture, the emphasis 
is that God became, in every sense of the word, a man. And all of these incredible things that he accomplished, his, the blamelessness of his character, those things that you see in Christ and they, just, they leave you in awe and make you marvel, the Bible teaches that he did these as a man totally and completely dependent on his Father and totally and completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. When you realize this, Jesus becomes your model. He is the perfect example of the Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered life. This is why we're told He can sympathize with us because everything that Jesus did, He expects us to do in the same manner. And because He did all that He did as a man, totally and completely dependent on His Father and totally and completely dependent on the Spirit of God, He becomes more than just a, a collection of unattainable and impossessible attributes. He becomes more than the kind of person you would never hope to be. He becomes your example. He becomes the one who teaches you how to be like Him, who teaches you how to keep in step with the Spirit, and He shows you, not so much by His words, but by a call to imitate His life. And in Him you not only see what it looks like to depend on the Spirit, but what such a life would look like and is capable of. And to the degree you follow His example, you will be transformed by degrees into His image and His likeness. So let's look at then Christ's example and how He walked in the Spirit and let's see some of the footsteps He left us to follow. He did nothing on His own. You're taking notes, you can write one. First footstep. He did nothing on his own. And I'm not going to go to any particular passage, but a number in John's Gospel, because in John's Gospel it says this over and over and over again. For instance, in chapter 5, Jesus is being confronted by a crowd because he healed on the Sabbath. And he answers them by saying, God his Father was working. They get outraged because he called God his Father. They're ready to kill him for claiming to be equal to God. And then in verse 19 of chapter 5, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, so Jesus speaking to the crowd, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He always does what he sees his Father doing. A few verses later in verse 30, I do nothing on my own. I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In John 7, 18, He tells the people that He seeks only the glory of the One who sent Him. Only seeks the glory of God. Again, in 8, 28, I do nothing on my own. Next verse, 29, I do only what is pleasing to God. John 14, 31, I do exactly as my Father commands me. Jesus made it the aim of His life to do nothing except what His Father in heaven would have Him to do. He did nothing except that which would bring glory to His heavenly Father. Now, how did He know? If everything He did, He did as a man, how did He know what would bring glory to His Father? How did He know the Father's will? How was He sure what that was? He determined it the same way you or I would. Through the Word of God and prayer. Jesus learned the will of God 
the will of his Father through studying the Word and through prayer. What I mean to say is he wasn't born with it. He grew into it. Now, he was always sinless. He had no sinful nature. But he wasn't born a theological genius. He was born a little baby who became a theological genius. He grew. His mind developed. He learned to walk. He learned to eat. He learned to speak and to think. He was truly man. In Luke 2.52, it says, so, says this. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew up. He grew up physically. He increased in wisdom. He grew in favor with God. What does that mean? Jesus was never disobedient. He never had an inclination to sin like the rest of us. But he still had to grow into spiritual maturity. And he did it through the acquisition of wisdom and by becoming wise through the study of the Word, he grew in favor with God. Now, he did this, of course, perfectly. Jesus always knew what the will of God was. He always walked in step with the Spirit. He always sought His Father. But you think, well, wait a minute. Isn't the only way we can know the, word, the will of God through the Word of God? Well, anything that contradicts the Word, you can be for sure, it is not God's will. But there are many things you will face where you just don't know. And you have to seek the Lord in prayer. Let me give you an example of this from the life of Christ. He is about to decide who his 12 disciples are going to be. Do you remember that? And what's he do? He, he doesn't have a, a, a passage he can turn to and say, I'm going to pick these 12. And so we're told that Jesus goes and he spends the entire night in prayer. And after having prayed, he came down and chose his 12 disciples who he would name apostles. When Jesus had a difficult decision to make, by his example, we see it in his life, he would spend the night in prayer. He spends the night discerning the will of his Father before he makes the decision. This is convicting for me to read. Because how many important decisions have I made, have we made, without five minutes of prayer, let alone a night. And prayer is a secondary thing to us. It's the backup plan. It's what we do when every other avenue has been exhausted. How much difficulty and toil and pain would be saved if we had spent the time seeking direction from God beforehand? And you say, well, we have the Word, yes, but what about all of those decisions you have to make and you don't have a very clear verse for? And we have principles, yes, and they're very helpful. But we also have the ear and the promises of our Heavenly Father. And there ought to be a sense that in everything we do, if we're walking by the Spirit, we would be able to say, I made the decision that I did because I believed it was the will of God for me. And so if you want to walk in the Spirit, strive to know the will of God and do it. This is really at the heart of walking in the Spirit. You're walking according to the will of another and not your own. This is really what is at the, at the center of it. Your own will is dead. Your own will has been crucified. 
And so you take all of your plans and you take all of your ambitions, all of your dreams and your hopes and your desires and you put them in a chest and you lock the chest and you hand it over to the Lord and you pray, Lord, do with it as you will. It belongs entirely to you. And until you do this, it will be impossible to walk in step with Him. Now, God may give some of these ambitions or desires back to you. He may give them all back to you. But they're all on the table. And they're all for Him to distribute or withhold as He wills. And we are content and even joyful to follow where He leads us. Where He, from the Word and from prayer, never divorced from one another, lead us. Number two, next footprint. Jesus emptied himself. Philippians tell, tells us he, he didn't stop being God. And these divine attributes were not taken away from him, but he voluntarily gave them up. Now, why is this so important? Well, one of the reasons it's important is it really works to clarify his humanity. He really was a man. But it also reminds us that he did not do what he did by divine power. He didn't reach into himself and summon out some of his deity to do what he did. He, he emptied all of that out. He didn't use it. Everything that Jesus did, he did in the same way that you or I would have to do it if we were in the same situation. Now, of course, it is not done to the same degree, but it is done the same way. If we were traveling on the same road, he traveled 100 miles an hour in a golden carriage. We're going 10 miles an hour on a bicycle, but we're on the same path. We're following the same direction. Now, consider what the prophet says about Jesus in Isaiah 11, of how the Messiah will accomplish what he accomplishes. Isaiah 7, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. This is a passage about the Messiah. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So the Messiah will come, the root of Jesse, the son of David, and when he does, where will his power come from? The Spirit of the Lord. How did the Lord grow in wisdom and understanding? How did he advance in counsel and in might? How did he develop knowledge and the fear of the Lord? It was done by the Spirit at work in him. Now let me make a very clear distinction between he and us. Because this is not like how, how we who were taken from darkness and brought into light work. We came dirty to be cleaned and have residual uh, remaining sins to be overcome. And he didn't have any of that, but that does not mean he did not grow. Uh, imagine a light bulb. And the light bulb was dead and needed to be repaired and it was dirty and it needed to be cleaned. And then it was made clean. And then it was restored. And then it lit up. That would be like us. And then imagine as the light was plugged in, it grew brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. You would say there always was a light there, but now it is much brighter today than it was when it began. Jesus is not like that. He is like a light bulb that was plugged in and shone brightly and went from shining like a light in one of these fixtures over the course of his light to shining with the brightness of the sun. Never was there a sin in him, but he grew in his majesty and grew in his, in his brightness as a man. Jesus was the light that came into the world shining brightly, pure and clean, and then only grew even brighter as time went on. 
And as the Lord walked in the Spirit, He grew in these things Isaiah speaks of. And He did it by the Spirit of God. He had to depend on someone else to empower His perfect sanctification and knowledge and wisdom and might. And you say, Jesus sanctified. Yes, He says, I sanctify Myself in John 17 for the church. Jesus says, I sanctify Myself. Number three, more to the lines of what walking in the Spirit does, but it made Jesus bold. It made Him bold. Have you ever wondered how He preached with such courage and authority? How He feared no one but God? How He didn't entrust Himself to anyone or care what they thought and seemed to be able to overcome any sense of, of being a people pleaser? He did it by the power of the Spirit. Consider the first sermon He preached. It was Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It's amazing how often he says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our Lord, to comfort all who mourn. So that's what he is going to do. He is going to preach to the poor, to the poor in spirit. Have you ever had a hard time with this, with evangelism? Now, we know it's good. We know it's worth proclaiming. And look at the passage. When you read this passage and you think, yes, that's something that's worthy to be said. That's, that's what we ought to be about. But it's not the way we are, is it? We're not as bold often as we want to be. We lack courage. We don't proclaim liberty to the captive for fear they'll lash out. We don't open the prison door for fear that we would be trampled. We don't proclaim the favor of the Lord or the day of vengeance or comfort to those who mourn, even though we of all people know how glorious and worthy to be proclaimed those things are. We're not as bold as we want to be. You know the one thing in Scripture that allows that fear to be overcome. It's walking in step with the Spirit. In this passage from Isaiah, look at what enables Jesus to preach this way. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon Him. That's why He is so bold. It doesn't even originate in Him. It is given to Him. So the reason that Jesus was able to live a life free of the fear of man is because He was filled with the Spirit of God. Later on in the book of Acts, these early disciples, uh, the persecution is rising. It's about to become very difficult for them to proclaim Christ. What do they do? They pray for the Spirit to give them boldness. Paul the Apostle is about to go into a, a very difficult place to preach in, in Greece. And he says to the, I believe it's to the Colossians, pray for me that I might preach with boldness. It's acquired, he understands, through prayer. And even today, that admirable, indomitable attitude that some Christians have, and they don't seem to be afraid of anything. You know people like this? They speak and they say difficult things. They're not concerned with the consequences. Nobody achieves that apart from the Spirit of God. I mean, if, if Christ found His courage and His boldness to preach by the Spirit, 
where are you going to dig it out from? You're not going to dig it out from anywhere because it isn't found in you. It's found in Him. It is something to be asked for and received, not dug out and displayed. Number four, and when His boldness incited the crowds against Him, it was the Spirit of God who enabled Him to face or to endure or to escape the rage of hostile men. Often believers wonder, Maybe you wonder, if if persecution comes, if tribulation comes, and we're going to face difficult suffering, you wonder, am I going to be able to endure? You will, according to the endurance that the Spirit provides. Look at verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. So Jesus is been, has been tempted in the wilderness. We'll look at that temptation next. But he's been tempted in the wilderness. He's going back to his hometown, back to Galilee. It says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. So he comes back, in the power of the Spirit. And so the people, he's preaching, the people are hearing him, they're amazed at his preaching. They flatter him. He's being glorified by all, but the flattery didn't deceive him because flattery is worthless. It's fickle. And you see this because only a little while later, Jesus reads the passage we just looked at from Isaiah 61. He affirms that he is the Spirit-filled Messiah. And when he does... All of the people in Galilee, those who were amazed at his preaching, they turn against him violently. Right? So he goes to Galilee. He preaches in the power of the Spirit. He then reads about being filled with the Spirit so that he can accomplish his commission. Everybody marvels. And then when he confronts them on their unbelief, maybe bewildered is a better word than marveled. They're bewildered by what he said and he rebukes them. And then in verse 29, And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the edge of a cliff on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went away. All of this is in the context of him being filled with the Spirit. It comes up three times prior in this chapter. He is filled with the Spirit. And with that... He goes to his hometown, preaches, amazes everyone, confronts them, and then faces the mob that chases him out of town because they want to throw him over a cliff and murder him. He faces the danger, even walks into it, not because he is so bold or fearless, but because the Spirit empowers him to endure. The Spirit gives him boldness to face it. This is just one example of courage in the Spirit. There there are a lot more. I mean, think of Jesus facing the great trial in the garden. Where does he go? He goes to his Father to be strengthened to face the trial he is about to endure. Now, related to this, number five, the Lord overcame temptation and trials. Temptation and trials. So he faced, he, he, he faced fear by the power of the Spirit. He endured by the power of the Spirit. He overcomes by the power of the Spirit. Luke 4.1, so just prior to the confrontation in Galilee, we're working backwards. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. 
So Jesus here, He's been baptized. The dove descends on Him. He is full of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads Him into the wilderness where He is tempted. Now how does He overcome? He overcomes the devil by the power of the Spirit. And you say, but I thought He quoted Scripture. Yes. But notice how He goes, goes out. He goes out filled, right, full of the Holy Spirit of God. This was a prerequisite for the battle to come. And it was the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit working through the Word that protected Him. Now one of those things that's, I think, obvious in Scripture, if you'll allow me to take a slight detour, I'll connect it back. One of the things that's obvious in Scripture is how often being filled with the Spirit is connected with prayer. Prayer is the way that you are filled with the Spirit. I mean, certainly that is the example that Christ sets for us, right? He was a man of prayer. He prayed all the time. You, you see this in the Gospel. Whenever he had an important decision to make, whenever he had an important decision to make, he spent the night, the whole night, in prayer. When he was exhausted and he was worn completely to the bone, he goes up on a mountain and spends the night in prayer. He's rejuvenated in prayer. He finds his rest in prayer. And like I said, when his greatest trial is upon him and he's trembling in the garden, he goes and he spends all of the time he has left between the Last Supper and his crucifixion, his trial. He spends that time in prayer. The disciples come to him and all of the things they could have asked him, they never ask Him to teach. They never ask Him, teach us to preach, teach us to cast out demons. They don't ask Him anything like that. But they do ask Him to teach them to pray. Why? Because Jesus' life, His example compelled them to see the importance of prayer. And they saw and they understood that everything Jesus did was achieved by the Spirit of God acquired in prayer. I mean, His wisdom, His preaching, His courage, it came from spending time with the Heavenly Father. How does this connect with facing temptation? You see something similar later on in the Gospels. It is when a man brings his son to the disciples and they can't cast a demon out of him, Jesus tells His disciples, this kind only comes out by prayer. So you see, there are certain decisions and certain temptations and certain deeply embedded sins in your life that are only going to come out through wrestling in prayer because prayer is the means of being empowered by the Holy Spirit for making those decisions and facing those temptations and overcoming those besetting sins. It happens through prayer. Number six, briefly, Jesus was empowered for ministry by the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, see where the emphasis is, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him. Jesus, a man who God worked 
through in His ministry. He was attested to the men of Israel by the works that He... What? It doesn't say attested by the works that He did. It says He was attested to Israel by the works and wonders and signs that God performed through Him. Jesus' ministry is the pinnacle of a Spirit-empowered ministry. And no ministry can succeed apart from the working of the Spirit of God. And before you think, well, that might apply to the leaders and the elders in the church, but not really to me. Ephesians 4.12 says that ministry is your job. And the leaders of the church are responsible to equip you, encourage you for it. God has given the responsibility of ministry in the world and to one another to each and every one of you. I mean, if you're a father or a mother, you have been given a ministry to your children. And you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be able to do any of it. And that is the example of Christ. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He did what He did by the Holy Spirit. He walked he did uh, live the, the will of God in his life according to the power of the Spirit. Everything he did as our example. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? How do you do it? We've looked at some of the example of Christ. We have bits and pieces of it in our mind. How do you keep in step with the Holy Spirit and follow the Lord's example? Well, two points. We've hinted at these already, but I want to make them clear here at the end. Two ways you walk in step with the Spirit. One, you do it by losing your life. Two, by being totally dependent on God. Very often when we think about sanctification, which is the goal of keeping in step with the Spirit, it, just, it means to become holier, sanctification, to become holier, to become more like Jesus Christ. Often when we think about it, we think about it in terms of law-keeping. If I keep the commands, I will be walking with the Spirit. Right, so if I keep this command and I keep this command, I will be a nobler vessel. And I will have a greater enjoyment and empowering of the Spirit of God for a holy life. Well, that's not wrong. But it is backward. We don't keep the law of Christ and so are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit and so keep better the law of Christ. And if Christ is our example, so what do you mean filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean primarily seeking Him alone in prayer. Seeking Him at all times. Walking in step with Him. And if Christ is our example, then being filled with the Spirit is a very costly endeavor, isn't it? Being filled with the Spirit is much more demanding than just keeping a few laws here and there. And you say, what do you mean? Well, which is easier? You get into a situation that demands patience. And so you say to yourself, I'm going to have to be patient, and this time I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to do it. Maybe you have a bracelet on to remind you to be more patient, right? Or you are quoting verses to yourself about patience. You're going into a moment that requires it. You are um, giving yourself a pep talk about patience. Those things can be helpful. But listen, if that's all you have, 
and in the moment when patience is required, you're, you're really focused on being patient. Is that easier or more difficult than living your entire life walking with the Lord so that you are ready when those situations come? See, very often we think that all we need is momentary help for a particular challenge. Right? A, a burst of strength to deliver the final blow to a particular sin. A, a surge of holy boldness when courage is demanded. It doesn't work that way. It is the entirety of the life that must be ready. It doesn't require a sudden, temporary eruption of spiritual power. It requires a life filled with the Spirit so that when those things come, there is a full reservoir to be drawn from. And I am convinced that the reason this does not happen is very often we are too busy to spend the time necessary to walk with the Spirit. It's simply too much. The Lord has promised, has promised if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. Do we want to draw near? He said if you seek Him with your whole heart, you will find Him. He said He's not hidden Himself far off. He is near. But that's too costly. My whole heart, that's too much. It would cost too much time and too much effort. There, there are things I want to do. It would be easier, wouldn't it, to just summon up the strength and courage and endurance and patience when the, the situation demanded it. But I don't have time to memorize Scripture or meditate on it day and night. I couldn't possibly spend an hour in the evening in prayer, let alone an entire night. Are you stronger than the Lord Jesus Christ who has given us an example and laid out a path before us? We often live as though we found a shortcut to holiness. There are no shortcuts. We're not wiser or stronger than Him. And so you see what I mean. We very often do not want to take the time to be holy. We do not want to sacrifice like Christ. It's, uh, there was a famous violinist, Isaac Stern, and after a concert, a lady came up to him and said, Oh, I would give my whole life to be able to play the violin like you play the violin. He told the lady, Ma'am, I have given my life to play the violin like I play the violin. I have given my life to play like me. If we want to be like Jesus Christ, that's a good picture to get into your mind because you see these people, uh, the, these master uh, violinists, they spend hours a day doing nothing but practicing on their violins, practicing their instruments so that they can be better musicians. If you want to be like Christ, it will cost you your life. If you want to walk in step with the Spirit of God, it's going to cost your time, your ambitions, your desires. It may cost you your hobbies. It may cost you your evenings. They belong to Him. Nothing lost will truly be lost, of course. In fact, it's the only way to keep anything for eternity. I forget who said it, but a short little poem I remember I remember one of, my, uh, one of my teachers had it over their door. It said, only one life that soon, soon will be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Anything done for Christ is preserved for eternity. 
And if our Lord and our example was filled with the Spirit by seeking only to do the will of the Father, we're not going to be able to do those things any other way. There is only one way to be a Christian. And the gate is narrow and the road is hard. Second application. We must realize and recognize our total and utter dependence on the power of God through the Spirit. See, I know that when you hear these sermons on the fruit of the Spirit, on keeping in step, we've had two of them already. Love and forgiveness. And I know when you hear about love or patience or forgiveness, the kind that God calls us to or the things He calls us away from, like fits of wrath and jealousy and strife, you're going to be convicted. And you're going to say something along these lines. I'm really not doing well in that area. I need to try a lot harder to do those things. And so you see the Bible says, be gentle. I really need to work hard, harder at being gentler. Listen, if you do that, I think you may be reading the book wrong. And you're thinking that you can do a lot more than you actually can. See, when you read that you ought to love your enemies, to do good to them, to be gentle and patient and joyful like Christ, you ought to read these things and say, there is no possible way that I could ever do this. You ought to see it and confess, this is entirely beyond any resources that I have and it should lead you to call desperately upon the Lord and cling to Him for all of the resources necessary to live the Christian life. You, you don't have them in you, but they're available to you if you ask. It ought to drive us to a greater dependence on the Spirit of God and His power. And that ought to drive you to a greater intensity and in time spent in prayer. I mean, doesn't the Lord say, Will He not give the Spirit to those who ask Him. Doesn't He tell us in James, you have not because you ask not. And you, don't, don't you know that you can't do these things that you're called to do on your own? You already know what to do. The problem rarely is knowing what to do, isn't it? You know you ought to control your temper. You know you ought to forgive. You know you ought to keep your tongue in check. And it seems even if you cut your tongue out of your mouth, it's not going to fix the problem. I mean, you read, be gentle. What do you say? I know. Be patient. I know. Have joy. I know. Put away jealousy. I know. I just can't. I can't do these things. They're stronger than me. The sin is more powerful than me. And it is, and you know this well. But it's not more powerful than the Lord God. Sin is not stronger than His Spirit. And so if you would walk in step with Him... If you would overcome, if you would put those things to death, some of them only come out by prayer. If you would cultivate the character of Christ, you must decide and count the cost. Count the cost of holiness. Count the cost of being like Christ and be willing to pay it and hand over your life, all of it, to Him. The alternative is to strive and continue in your own effort and condemn yourself to disappointment. Christ is our example. He is the Spirit-empowered, ever-dependent man. And if Christ did everything that He did by living His entire life in the power of the Spirit and in the will of God through much prayer and devotion, don't kid yourself into thinking that somehow you're going to do it any other way. 
You won't and you can't. You must humbly and entirely rely on Him and obtain what is needed to live the Christian life through prayer, through seeking and believing Him. So when you hear these sermons and you're convicted, don't look at yourself and your own strength because if you do, you will be in despair. When you hear these things, admit that you cannot do what Christ has called you to. Realize this is not in me to do these things. And then go to God. Go to the source of all life and holiness and ask Him and pray and depend on Him and meditate and build your life on Him. God, what would you have me do? How would you want me to act when I'm wronged? What words do you want to come out of my mouth? How do you want me to spend my time? How do you want me to spend my evenings and my mornings? How do you want me to, to act as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent? Find out what the Word of God says about these things and cry out to Him day and night that He would give you the strength to do it. And if you set yourself on this path, you can trust, certainly He will help you. You can have as much of the power of God for a holy life as you desire. He has not put a limit on what He is willing to give. You can walk in the Spirit as much as you want. The question is only that. How much do you really want to be like Him? It was everything to our Lord Jesus Christ. I seek only what gives glory to Him. I seek only the will of my Father. Let it be the same for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the example of Christ. Lord, I pray that even though it is a difficult thing, Lord, to see our own pride and to see how much we strive on our own, Lord, You are so gracious. And though we tried to walk on our own, Lord, You are ready and willing to quickly come and say, this is the way, walk in it. Lord, You forgive, You love, You guide. And I pray for anyone here this morning who has been struggling with sin, who has been struggling to overcome or uh, is, is floundering in fear, I pray that they would see Your example and that they wouldn't be discouraged, but that they would have a renewed confidence, not in themselves, but in You that they would have a renewed dependence on You and that they would go to You to be strengthened for whatever situation You have in Your sovereignty and Your wisdom placed them into. You will enable Your children to overcome wherever You have placed them, wherever they walk. Lord, we can always walk according and in and in step with the Spirit of God that You have given us. In fact, Lord, it is better that you went away that the Spirit could come. And we thank you for this. I pray for all of us here. If, Lord, if anyone does not know you, that they would come. That they would see that they cannot save themselves. Lord, we cannot walk in the Spirit. We cannot save ourselves apart from your grace and your mercy. I pray that they would come to you and find mercy, Lord, and then that they would set their lives to follow Christ. And I pray that all of us would walk more nearly and closely with you after this morning. Thank you for your word and for your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.